0: Well, my name is Ryan. My last name is Patelike, but you don't have to worry about trying to pronounce that. Uh, Sometimes I have a hard time pronouncing it myself. Uh, But I come to you born and raised from Cleveland, Ohio. And we are the home of the team that lost the World Series in 2016. Uh, In case anyone forgot about that, (laughs) I know I haven't. But um, my family is still in Cleveland my parents, my brother, and sister. And I came out to the Chicago area uh, back in 2011 to study at Trinity, because I did both my bachelor's and master's degrees there. And after finishing my studies, I got a job uh, working at the Orchard in Arlington Heights and served for a few years there, working in their student ministry, working with middle school-aged kids. And uh, for the last two years, I've been working as an associate pastor at the Itasca campus which is near kind of the Schomburg-Woodfield Mall area, if you aren't familiar. Um, but it is a joy uh, for me to be here this morning. I'm so grateful to get to meet Pastor Mitch and each of you from the Good News uh, Evangelical Free Church. And I'm excited that we can continue this series in the book of Luke uh, this morning. Thankful for Pastor Mitch already reading our text for us this morning. So please do keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 13. And what I want to show us from God's Word this morning is two promises about the kingdom of God. The first promise will speak to the individual, and the second promise will speak to what we will see is a growing group of people. So first, let us look at this promise of God's kingdom that's to the individual. We're going to see this promise in the story of Jesus, in what is his last recorded teaching in a synagogue. And so we begin here in verse 10 that says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So the first question I had is, what is a synagogue? Synagogue is not a term used for the temple. Kind of a, a church word. What does the synagogue mean? This word means a meeting place. Or a gathering place. And there were many synagogues in Jesus' day. Historians tell us that just in Galilee, there were as many as 250 different synagogues. Kind of like how today we might say there's like a church on every corner. It was almost like there was a synagogue on every corner. And as Jesus ministered over a year there, he went through all of Galilee. He was preaching and teaching. In the synagogue. This was a place that was a house of instruction. So the question is, if this is a house of instruction, what was Jesus instructing about? What was Jesus teaching about? And Jesus actually told us this back in Luke chapter 4, verse 33. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for I was sent for this purpose. So as we will see clearly in this story, Jesus' kingdom message was not received well by all who were in his hearing. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus has come across a woman who has a dire physical condition. You can read with me, it says, Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Take a moment and we consider what was this woman's condition? What must this have been like? Imagine what even just going to sleep each night would be like. Was this woman married? did this woman have children? Imagine the difficulty in this condition of giving your child a hug after a hard day at school. The sorrow of asking your family each day for help with even basic daily tasks. Not only this, though, but imagine being an outcast in your community. The Jewish people of this day have the viewpoint that if you had a suffering condition, you must have been a bad person. We know this. Consider John chapter 9. There was a blind man, and the people around him asked, Have you sinned, or was it your parents that sinned that resulted in this condition? Or even we look at the Old Testament in the book of Job. All of Job's friends came to him and said, What is the sin in your life? Sin must be the reason why you are suffering today. That was their theology. If you're suffering, you must be punished by God for something you've done wrong. And so here we find a woman who for 18 years had been looked at and scorned by the people around her. Here was a woman who was doubled over, bent over in physical pain, and likely wondering, does anyone see me? Does anyone care that I am in such physical misery? Is there anyone out there who can give me hope of freedom? So my friends, this morning, though not all of us have a grave physical condition, like this woman in this story, I want you to consider that this is a picture for all of us who have a grave spiritual condition. Condition, And this spiritual condition is called sin. I want us to see from this story that though left on our own, we are hopeless in our sin. We have this promise of God's kingdom that those who enter his kingdom will experience everlasting freedom. And so what I want us to see as we go through this story is five actions of God that bring freedom. We're going to look at five actions of God that bring freedom. So the first action is that God sees. God sees. Verse 12 begins saying, when Jesus saw her. Have you ever heard someone say when they're going through a hard time, I wonder if anyone notices how badly I'm hurting? especially if they've been hurting for a long time. This is something I know that I've felt in my life. And we see here that Jesus sees this hurting woman. And we consider the reality today that Jesus sees us. Psalm 139 says that God saw us before we were even born. It says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. But friends, not only did God see us before we were born, God still sees us now. Proverbs 15.3 says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on both the evil and the good. So if any of us here today would wonder, does God see me? Does God notice me? Even though I'm a sinner, does God actually consider me? Let us hear God's word speak to us this morning, a resounding yes. God sees us. And now secondly, we see that God calls. Verse 12 continues, When Jesus saw her, he called her over. So Jesus picked her out of the crowd. He initiated an interaction with this woman. This passage doesn't speak of this woman coming to Jesus in faith. It doesn't tell us that she came to be healed. We see that in the relationship between God and man, God is the initiator. Even despite people being enemies of God, we see that the God of the Bible he is a calling God. Consider 1 Corinthians 1 9 that says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, to this he called you through our gospel that you would obtain the glory of Jesus. So friends, let us consider that just as Jesus sees and calls this hurting woman, God has seen and he has called a people, even sinners like us, for his own possession, that we would proclaim the greatness of Him who called us out of darkness, and He called us into His marvelous light. And so we can ask each other the words of this song that we sing at my church on Sundays often. It says, are you hurting and broken within? Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. So we see that God sees. We've seen that God calls. And now thirdly, we will see that God frees. The finish of verse 12 into verse 13 Jesus says, Woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. This woman, who for 18 years had been bound, was now set free. This is a word that means released from slavery, released from captivity. Satan no longer had his grip of authority over her body. Friends, I want us to see this morning that Jesus' freeing touch on this woman is a picture of his freeing touch on all of us today who would put our faith in him. The Lord Jesus is the one that Isaiah 61 speaks about. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So what might this freeing work of Jesus look like in our world today? Consider a woman who is a slave to the love of money. She has a heart that is filled with greed. And after the freeing touch of Jesus, she is now a woman who is focused on the needs of others. A woman who loves generosity. Or consider a man who is a slave to pornography. He has a heart that is filled with lust. But after the freeing touch of Jesus, after Jesus touches this man, he is now a man focused on the honor of others. He is now a man who loves purity. And so Jesus says in John eight thirty two, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the Son, Jesus Christ, sets us free, We are free indeed. Anyone today who would say, I don't want any longer to be a slave to sin. I don't want any more to be bound in chains spiritually as an enemy of God. Let us see today that it is Jesus Christ alone who has the touch that brings our freedom. After this freedom is received, we now see action number four, which is that God receives the glory. After this woman was freed by Jesus, what did she do? Verse 13 says that immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. This woman had a mighty act of God put on display in her life. Did she look around at the crowd and say, hey, look at how awesome I am? Did she kind of pound her chest and spike the football, do a little touchdown dance? Man, look how great I am. Jesus put his power on display in me. He chose me. No, it tells us that she gave the glory to God for her freedom. She gave God the credit for this wonderful act of power in her life. And friends, today this is the same for us. When we consider our freedom from sin, we see Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. So friends, let us remember that our freedom is not from our own doing. It is not a testament to how great we are. This is a testament to how great our God is. And we can say with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, but to your name. We give the glory because of your steadfast love and because of your faithfulness. So we've seen that God we've seen that God calls, we've seen that God frees, we've seen that God receives the glory, and then finally, this last action, we see that God shames his adversaries. When we look at this story, who are Jesus' adversaries? Or another word for adversary would be, who are Jesus' enemies? Verse 14 says, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Why don't you come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath day? The ruler of the synagogue has the responsibility of overseeing the whole gathering place and all the activities therein. He has just seen a woman, a woman who desperately needed mercy, a woman who desperately needed some compassion, and you would have thought he would have joined in the chorus of those saying, praise be to God for her freedom. But Luke describes him with this one word. It says that he was indignant. This is a word that means intense displeasure. Not only does this man not have compassion, he is not even a man of courage. We see in this text that he didn't even have the courage to tell Jesus his complaint directly. He just muttered his complaint around the crowd, privately. And so Jesus responds to him in verse 15 and 16, and he says, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey? from the manger, and lead it towards the water? And ought not this woman, who is a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, should she not be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus is reminding these people that this woman is one of their own. She's a daughter of Abraham. Do you not want her to be healed? Jesus is making clear what Matthew 23 says about the Pharisees, that they were people who tie heavy loads onto others. They lay heavy burdens on the shoulders of men, and they lift not one finger to help them. Religious people who had rule after rule and law after law, even on the Sabbath day. And that made the Sabbath day one of the most dreaded days of the week. This was a day of paralysis for the people of God because of this great hypocrisy of these religious leaders. But in contrast, we see the Lord Jesus, who healed this woman on the Sabbath, not only showing his divine power, but Jesus shows that the heart of our God is a heart of compassion on those who are suffering. Verse 17 tells us what the hypocrites did when Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Friends, let us consider that just as Jesus' adversaries were brought to shame in this story, consider how the adversaries of Jesus were brought to shame at the cross, where he freed us from our sin. At the cross of Jesus, our record of debt was nailed. And by doing this, Colossians chapter 2 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to shame. This woman is a picture of the saving work of the Lord, how the bound sinner can be brought by faith to freedom in the kingdom of God. So we say glory to him who has seen us, who has called us, who has freed us, and by whose hand no adversary, no enemy, could stand against us. So now that we've seen this promise, this glorious promise of the kingdom of God to the individual, let us finish this morning by looking at two illustrations Jesus gives about this promise of a growing kingdom of God. So Let's look at this first illustration, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So Jesus tells us here that God's kingdom, where he reigns, is like a mustard seed, beginning like the smallest of seeds that were used in the Palestinian gardens. But it will not stay small. It will become very large, and it's going to grow. It will be so big that even the birds of the air can come and they can take shelter. So let's take a moment and consider the humble beginnings of the kingdom of God. Jesus started with 12 disciples. And when I was growing up, going to school at recess, we knew who the first picks for kickball were and who the ones weren't. And if you're starting a kingdom for God, I don't know that these 12 were the first choices. For how to get this started, I mean, consider that these were the same people who fell asleep while Jesus was trying to pray. These were people who couldn't even keep watch over him for an hour. Yet, this is the mustard seed with which this kingdom starts. And after Jesus ascends into heaven, we see 120 people now in an upper room who have just seen their king disappear from their eyes. They have two men giving them assurance that Jesus is going to come back. And if I were in the room, I would imagine being very confused and very concerned whether this kingdom of God would be growing in the future. But what did these faithful followers in this upper room do? The book of Acts tells us that they began to pray. Jesus promised them, this was a promise, In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that when the Holy Spirit of God came upon them on the day of Pentecost, they would be empowered to be the seeds of witness for Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We begin to see the picture of how this small mustard seed will become a great and a glorious tree. Friends, I want us to know this morning that this empowerment by the Holy Spirit was not just for the disciples of that day, but this is a promise for all of us, that all of Jesus' followers are called to be his witnesses, and we get to participate in his kingdom growth. By faith in Jesus' promise, we believe that God's kingdom is going to continue to grow. Jesus gives one more illustration to affirm this promise in us. Verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leavened. The focus here in this illustration is not the contrast between small and large, but between a reality that is visible and a reality that is hidden. Those at my church who know me well know that I am not an expert in the kitchen. But kitchen experts out there understand that leaven, like yeast, produces something called fermentation in the dough of bread, causing it to rise when it is baked. So Jesus is saying that a small amount of leaven that is mixed into a batch of dough, it's going to permeate the whole loaf, and it's going to change its entire nature. I really appreciated Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage. He helps uh, a non-kitchen expert like me understand what's happening here. He says that yeast, or leaven, works silently yet irresistibly it works strongly and irresistibly this hidden reality at times can cause us to doubt as we look whether anything has changed or not i can't see it is anything working is anything happening we can easily be tempted today to think that the kingdom of god is not growing sometimes we look around and we hear all these statistics Man, have you heard how many people, percentage-wise, have left the church over the last few decades? Have you heard how many people around the world no longer identify as Christians? Man, I don't know if the kingdom of God is continuing to grow. This kingdom, this future, it might be looking bleak. But friends, let us hear Jesus say to us today that this kingdom that started with 12 disciples, just like a mustard seed, is growing into a great tree. Hear Jesus say that this kingdom, just like leaven in bread, it is on a hidden mission. The hidden power of the gospel is working. It is irresistibly working, even if we can't visibly see it. And so, friends, our God, who by faith in Jesus, he has freed us from our sins. He has made a way for us to be citizens of his kingdom, and he's not done yet. He is continuing to offer his freeing touch to anyone who would accept and receive this good news. And he is asking us, those who have already received his freedom, to be witnesses to a watching world, who desperately needs the hope of Jesus' freedom. So let us, this morning, let us take great joy at this promise that there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. There will be a day where we will stand before Jesus face to face. This one who died and who rose again, and we are going to get to sing together, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord. So this morning, if there's anyone here who has never put faith in Jesus for this freedom from sin, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day of freedom. And for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus, Let us be reminded, let us take encouragement that we are a part of a great growing tree. Let us rejoice that the one who has promised us this growing kingdom, he is faithful and he is a God who keeps his promises. Church, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this freedom mission that you sent your son Jesus on for us. We give thanks that there is not one person here today who is hopeless. There is not one person here today who is not seen, who is not known, and who is not watched by you. And Lord, I pray that each person here today would experience the freeing touch of Jesus Christ, Lord, if anyone here has never made that decision to put their faith in you, Lord, I ask that today would be the day of freedom. And Lord, I do pray for encouragement for this body of believers here in Woodstock. Lord, I'm praying that there would be great encouragement for these brothers and sisters to know that this kingdom of God, whether we can see it or not, this kingdom is growing. And we give all the praise and we give all the glory to you for this freeing work of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.